All right. Thank you, guys. Good seeing you this morning. Glad you're a part of this worship experience as we lift up the powerful name of Jesus. A great many of our folks are out for the holiday, out traveling, but we're so glad that uh, you are here this morning. Maybe some that are joining us online. And I hope that each one of us has prayed as we come into this service, praying that God's Spirit would speak to us and challenge us and stretch us in our relationship with Him, that when we walk out of here, that we might be a different people uh, than when we entered in, that God has changed us and challenged us with his word. And uh, we would love to have a, a conversation with you if during the course of this service, uh, the Holy Spirit lays it upon your heart to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you have been contemplating that for some time, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ. We'd love to be able to have a conversation with you about that. So we do hope that you would text that word FL, respond to the word to the number 833-571-3475 and that way we can follow up with you immediately or maybe you're already a follower of Christ but you're not a part of a church family which is a vital part of our uh, faith experience that we be associated with a, a church family family being the leading metaphor in scripture for the people of God so we would love to have a conversation with you about that we are in the book of James and we're going to finally wrap up chapter one of James. We've been doing a verse-by-verse -verse exposition through this uh, book. I think this is the sixth or seventh message, I, I believe, on chapter one. Uh, but we're going to wrap it up this morning, and uh, we're going to consider the topic of faith that shows of faith that shows, James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Hope you'll open your Bibles there, your smart device, whatever it is you need to follow along. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who gave to us Sherlock Holmes, wrote of an account when he was on a sailing vessel. He was in the stateroom of the ship when entertaining friends, when he heard outside his stateroom uh, the most vile, vulgar, blasphemous language. He hurriedly jumped up, went to his door and opened it to see a, a shirtless deckhand. And he said, every inch of that man's torso, his flesh, was tattooed with, with, religious, with religious symbols. There were crosses, there were crowns, there, uh, there, there were crown of thorns, there was a fish, there was a dove, uh, just all, not, not a single inch of, of skin showed. It was covered by these religious tattoos. Well, after seeing that, he shut the door and said to those in his stateroom, that's just further evidence that oftentimes Christianity is nothing more than skin deep. There is a vast difference between religiosity, that is, doing religious things. There is a vast difference between religiosity and those who have, uh, who have a faith that is committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I've never really been comfortable since becoming a Christian in college. I've never really been comfortable with that term religion or being referred to as being a, a religious person. Whenever someone makes reference to me, maybe you've had the same experience, to being a, a religious person, that, that's always been bothersome for me. Because I've never considered myself to be a religious person. I consider myself to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And so I've always had this disdain for, for the word religion. In fact, Karl Barth, Swiss theologian Karl Barth, called uh, the, 
uh, called religion and referring to religion, called it the preoccupation of godless men. I tend to agree with that. The preoccupation of godless men. Even scripture has a negative view of, of religion. The word that is translated here in our text today in verses 26 and 27, that is translated as religious, that word is only found three times in, in the New Testament. It's found uh, once in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 26 and verse 20 and verse five, Acts 26 and verse five, and then in uh, Colossians chapter two and verse 23. In Acts 26, uh, it refers to Jewish worship and practice. In Colossians chapter two, Paul's talking about the Colossian, her the Colossian heresy. And it's a veneration of worship where Paul uses that word religion and in chapter two and verse 23, he's talking about a veneration or expression of worship that is preoccupied with asceticism. That is a religion of don't do this, don't do that. And both of those occasions choose negatively. And James is the only one, this is the third usage in the New Testament of this word religion and religious. And James is the only one that uses it in a positive light. James uses it to make a reference there. James uses it rather to offer to us a contrast between religion that is real and religion that, that is false. And what real religion, real faith in Jesus Christ should, should look like and how that should be borne out of our lives. Listen to the words of James in their entirety in verse 26, beginning in verse 26. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained in the world. Now what James has done in, in these two verses is really summarize the entirety of, of, of chapter one. You will notice that in these two verses alone, we have the recurring themes that, that James has touched upon in, in all of, in the whole of chapter one, where he talks about, uh, where he talks about the poor, where he talks about how we are to live properly, how we are to resist uh, the desires of the world, the speech practices that are to characterize our lives up in uh, verses 19 and, and 20, and, the, and, and more especially what has been the heartbeat of James' concern is the power and the influence of the community of faith. For James' audience, this messianic community of believers. These people who are oppressed, who are impoverished, who have nothing. And what James is concerned is about the community influence. He is concerned about our witness as a people of God. Collectively, our witness in the world, how we bear testimony to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God among men that there is so much more at stake than just our own personal hardships and adversities, but as we each one individually respond in ways that are appropriate to our faith, then collectively, we as the church bear witness to the world of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And so James is using this word religion in a way that no one else has used it. And James is convinced 
that when an individual, when a person has stared intently, if you go back to that phrase in verse 25, James is convinced that when a person of faith, when an individual has stared intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of freedom, James is convinced that this individual will be, as, as we saw last week, a active doer, verse 25, a working, ergon, ergonomics. This person, having, having looked intently at the law of freedom, grace, that this person has been so transformed by the power of God that he is now going to be a working doer, an active doer. And so what does this doing look like? What is an appropriate and adequate doing of our faith? Well, that's what James is addressing as he just expounds further on verse 25. James says, it looks like this. This individual that is an active doer and has a faith that shows. This individual is going to have, first of all, and you're going to notice these are very challenging things that James sets before us, and that's the beauty of James. You can never read James and just be self-satisfied. Every one of us, when we read the book of James, we find ourselves being challenged all the more, stretched all the more in our becoming of what God would have us to be. And so the first thing that would represent those that have looked intently, those who, are in, those who have stared and studied intently the grace of God's freedom, who have looked intently upon this law of freedom, who as a result are active doers of the word, they'll first have a bridled tongue. These will be individuals marked by a bridled tongue. He says in verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion, he says, is worthless. I like the way James uses this if clause. He wants us to examine whether or not this is real, this faith that that we profess, if, he says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious. It's a rhetorical device that James is, is utilizing, this if clause. And if this is so, then there will be implications. Paul, Paul would do the very same thing. He would utilize this rhetorical tool. Uh, for example, over in Galatians chapter 6, Listen to how Paul writes and how Paul uses this rhetorical instrument in verse 3 of chapter 6. For if, for if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Use the same rhetorical device in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the same rhetorical device in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. And now going back to James, as he has done, go back to 
to chapter 1, look at verses 19 through 20 again, just review them. But as he has done in in chapter 1, in verses 19 and 20, and as James will do in chapter 3, and we'll get there eventually. But as James has done in chapter 3 in verses 1 through 12, James is willing to reduce religion that is a true expression of religion based and rooted in a commitment and a followership of Jesus Christ. James is willing to reduce this down for rhetorical purposes. James is willing to reduce this down to the ability to bridle your tongue. That's tough, isn't it? That if you really want to get down to it, James, and this is for a rhetorical argument, that real faith, the expression of it, is that you have the capacity to bridle your tongue. Now we got drug anon, we got al anon. For some folks, we need own and own and own anon. Inability to bridle the tongue. Now, I don't want to get off base here too far because what what James is referring to, and again, context is so important to proper biblical interpretation. What James is referring to here when he speaks of of bridling the tongue, this is so much more than, than just, than this is so much more than, than the recklessness of casual words, which we've all done, you know, you know, foot in your mouth, putting the foot in your mouth. We've all been there, done that. James is talking about more than that. Now, now the other has its own set of problems. Kind of reminds me of the story of the young grocery store clerk, young teenage young man. It was after closing hours. They had just closed up, and he's out there mopping the, uh, the, the aisles. And then here's this incessant banging on the front, on the front doors of, of the grocery store. This young man goes out there and looks and it's a, it's a, it's a, a woman that's begging and pleading. Oh, can you please open the doors? I'm, I'm having a dinner party and I forgot to get a head of lettuce for, for, for our salads and please, please, please. And she just pleads. And, and so the young man opens the door and lets her come in, follows her, follows her over to the produce section. She stands there for five minutes looking at all these different heads of lettuce. Finally, she says, well, you know, all I really need is a half a head of lettuce. Can you just sell me a half a head of lettuce? He says, ma'am, I'm going to have to go talk to, I'm going to have to ask the manager about that. Well, he, he leaves the produce section, walks over to the manager's station and says to the manager, you're not going to believe this. We got this crazy old woman wants to buy a half a head of lettuce. Well, unbeknownst to him, that woman had followed him from the produce section to the manager's section. He had no sooner got those words out of his mouth about this crazy woman when he noticed her standing there. And he turned quickly and said, but thank goodness we have this lady here who's willing to buy the other half. (laughs) Now, that's a quick-witted recovery right there. That's not what James is talking about. That has its own set of problems, but that's not what James is alluding to. If you'll remember the context of what James has, has been writing about and his concern for this, for this church, this messianic community and their testimony, he is talking about speech. He is talking about words that connects itself with violent outburst of anger. And this is a very hard challenge for us. Part of the challenge in us going 
through the book of James is trying to span that cultural gap from the audience he is writing now, uh, the, the audience he was writing to then and the audience that reads it today. Because James is writing to an oppressed people, an impoverished people, a degree of poverty that, that no one in this country, frank, frankly, could ever even relate to. And that's the kind of audience, and there are those within this audience who are being tempted. This is why he has been addressing this issue of temptation. There are those in his audience, among, in, within this messianic community, that they are, they are upset, they, they are angry, they are hostile, and they are wanting to revolt. They are by power and might, by the methodologies of this world, they are wanting to fight against their oppressors and overthrow them. And what James has done so far and will all the way through chapter three is to show that this kind of thinking, that kind of mindset is something that is counter, something that, that is opposed to the nature and the character of God. So when James is speaking about this, this bridled tongue, it's really referring back to what he has said back in, in verses 19 and 20, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for a man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. Don't ever think you're right. Listen, your angry outburst that would evoke violence and rebellion James argues that that never evokes the kingdom of God. That never brings forth the kingdom of God. The justice, the advocacy for justice and peace that God expects his people to reveal and make known and bear testimony to in the world, that's not how it's done. That's not how it's achieved. In fact, he says in verse 26, the one who does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart. That is, you intentionally are deceiving your own heart. That word deceive, the word in the Greek that is translated as deceive here in this text, in other places, the very same word is, is used to depict uh, the pursuit of my own pleasures, your own desires. And I think James is intentionally using that word because he has in his mind what he has already said back in verses 13 through 15. Listen, no one in, when he is tempted is tempted by God. This is of your own doing. And when you lash out, when you respond, when you don't bridle your tongue and you lash out with this angry, violent outburst, Oh, you're deceiving yourself. You're just trying to make yourself feel better. You're, you're, you're just doing something that brings pleasure to your own heart. And as a result, he says, this person's religion is worthless. It's idle. It's fruitless. It's powerless. Now, out of context, it's very easy to take this verse when he said that's a worthless kind of religion. It's, it's tempting, and, and I've seen some translators that have actually done this. I think it's in error because it's not in keeping with the context. There are some that, 
says, well, it, it means your eternal destiny is denied. Your, uh, the gift of salvation, this, this, doesn't, this kind of worthless religion does not accomplish the salvation of God. But remember what James's, James' concern is about. James' concern is about advocacy for peace and justice. It's about the people of God, the community of faith, bearing testimony of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God among them among men. In other words, this kind of violent outburst, that angry outburst, this unbridled tongue, that's worthless in accomplishing what God desires to see accomplished in the world among his people as bearing witness to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And where this inability exists, where a person of Supposed faith cannot bridle their tongue. That's just another kind of religion. That's just another religion among all the also-rans of religion. So James says this, this leading characteristic of someone that, that is stared intently of the law of freedom, this law of liberty, Someone that is an active doer. They have a bridled tongue. But listen, secondly, they also have a heart for the helpless. Pure and undefiled religion, verse 27, in the sight of God and Father, and the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. That word distress, philipsis in the Greek is a word that is most often associated with the distress of the last days, days of trial, days of, of tribulation. But James wants his audience to know that this kind of tribulation, this kind of distress, listen, this isn't just, a, this isn't just the end of the days type phenomena. This is a present reality among those in your midst. And remember, James is writing to an impoverished people. But he uses orphans and widows. These represent the weakest among you. These, these two groups are representative of the most powerless, the most marginalized among you. And we shouldn't be surprised. Remember, James is part of what I have pointed out, I think, every week of this series that James, his brother Jesus, his mother Mary, as we know from the Magnificat in Luke 2, they were a part of what uh, was known in ancient days, especially among the prophets, uh, what were referred to as an Anawim community, an Anawim people, a people who remained obedient to God, even in the midst of, most, of the most impoverished conditions of life. And that is the audience to whom James is writing. But even among you, a people who have nothing, a people who are oppressed, whose circumstances will probably never change in this lifetime, there are those still among you for whom you should have a heart. Those like widows and orphans. In that day and time, a people who were marginalized who were oppressed, taken advantage of all the more. 
And that's what James is saying is to characterize the people of God, that we have a heart for the helpless, the disenfranchised, those that are marginalized. And we have those within our society. That's an easy, that's an easy cultural gap to span. That part's very easy. Because there is in our midst, in our society, those that are oppressed, those that are marginalized, those that are powerless, that have no leverage. And we're to be their voice for the helpless. Listen, it's different. I'm not, I'm not talking about accommodating the whininess of a culture that creates its own drama in its head. That's not our burden to accommodate that. It's talking about people who are helpless. We're to have a heart for the, so what James would say, I know your passion, I know your zeal, I've seen evidence of your desire to lash out in anger, I know your negative emotion. James says, here's an idea for you. Instead of being so preoccupied with those in power, instead of being so preoccupied with your oppressors, instead of giving them all this rental space, free rental space inside your head, let your preoccupation, let your energies be towards those who are the weakest among you. You see how it dramatically shifts everything instead of all of my thoughts and all of my mental energies going to something that is negative, going to something that will never change. Socioeconomic conditions that, that will never change in your lifetime. Why not direct those energies over here to where you really can make a difference in real time, in a real moment? It's like the story I read of an elderly man. Poor elderly man lived in a ramshackle dump of a, of a home. Someone nearby reported him, reported him to a social agency. Social worker showed up visited with the man, gave him some brochures on proper nutrition. Assured him that if he would just educate himself on proper nutrition, maybe insulate his home, uh, his condition would probably improve. Leading news anchor for a television station, local station, got wind of the man's plight went over there, she was going to do a story, a series on poverty and was wanting to do the story of, of this man. Oh, she was deeply moved by, by what she saw, the pictures she took, the videos that she took of his home that she was going to use in that story. I mean, she, she, was, she was so stirred that she could hardly eat her steak that night at the country club. Politician running for office came by to see the man, deeply disturbed by what he saw and assured him that if I'm elected to office, I will try to pass bills and legislation that will take care of situations like this. A week or so later, a new man, a neighbor moved in close by. And as this man would walk his daily walk around the neighborhood, he noticed this man sitting out on his front porch and what started out as just engaging conversations from the sidewalk to the porch, eventually found him on the porch conversing, getting to know the man, his story, his background, came to, uh, to playing cards together and dominoes and checkers and chess, spending a lot of time together. Saw some things around the house that he could 
fix, offered to, to help make some repairs, started bringing meals with him. You know, I, after the passage of time, the man's condition and his situation improved vastly. Not because of education, not because of sympathy, not because of legislation, but because of love, because of compassion, because of a heart that saw something where I can do something about that. James says that's what characterizes pure and undefiled religion. That is what separates the Christian faith from all other religious expressions. That's what makes us a unique and distinctive people in a world that is self-absorbed. And the final thing that James says characterizes a people of God who are working doers, active doers, is that they have a clarity of calling. Again, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That word unstained there in my translation goes back to the word pure as James uses it there in that first clause of, of, of verse 27. And this idea of being, un, 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 being pure, being unstained by the world is not being marked by the world. The world cannot claim ownership of you is to be marked off in worldview. That because I've been called out by God, because I've been set apart to be a part of his holy people, it means I've been marked off in worldview from those who are unjust, those who, who are oppressors, those who are worldly in the lives that they live and, and pursue. It means that my worldview is filtered through the Word of God. Most people want to interpret the world this way. They watch the evening news and they try to see how it applies to Scripture and they take what they like to hear and they, and they impose it upon the biblical text when a biblical world, in fact, uh, views everything, everything that, that is seen, everything that is heard is viewed through the Word of God. This becomes the filter through which we interpret everything in life as opposed to those who have a worldly worldview. That's a word we've always heard in church, isn't it? the idea of worldliness, being worldly. What does that mean exactly? Well, some, I think, helpful definitions. C. Stacy Woods translates worldliness as a self-indulgent attitude toward life, the material universe, and all life's relationships. J. Henry Jowett, biblical scholar, says that worldliness is a spirit, a life without high callings, void of lofty ideals, a gaze that is always horizontal and never vertical. Whereas the one that is pure and unstained is consumed with the vert with with the vertical. There is a clarity of calling 
of who I am and what I am and what I am bearing testimony to in the world in which I live on a daily basis. Some time ago, Canadian scholar Wilfred Cantwell Smith wrote a book entitled Questions of Religious Truth. And in that book, there was a chapter that I, 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 I thought to be most captivating. It was a chapter in which he discussed uh, the difference between the word Christian as a noun and the word Christian as an adjective. The difference being, an example being, that if you ask me if I'm a Christian, I'm very quickly going to say, yes, I, I am a Christian. I, I, I've done what Scripture said. I, I, I have responded to the call of, of the Spirit. I've responded to the call of Christ. I've committed my life to following after him. Yes, I'm a Christian as a noun. But if you were to ask me, Bobby, are you Christian in everything that you do? As quickly as I want to say yes, I have to pause in honesty. And so, you know, there are times and situations that I wish I could have back. Where I don't think I'm there, I, I, I responded quite as I should have in deed and in spirit in a way that was really Christian. That really represented well, I don't think it represented well, the calling that is on my life and what I know I'm to be as a Christian man. I think I've failed some. You probably have too. And in applying that story to this text, I think it begs the question, what does an adjectival Christian look like? It's easy to claim yourself as being a Christian, a noun. But what does an adjectival Christian look like? Someone that is an active doer of the word and not just a hearer who deceives themselves. Well, James has answered it for us, hasn't he? It's someone who has a bridled tongue. It is someone who has a heart for the helpless and someone who has a clarity of their calling. In other words, they have a faith that shows. And Father, we pray that our faith might be the kind that truly shows. That our faith, in contrast to other religions, that ours would be marked by the things that you have called us to, a bridled tongue, a heart for the helpless, and that by the way that we live and the things that we do, we might in our lives bear testimony to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God among men. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.